0: Well, good morning. And as Tommy said, I am not Dr. Gilcher. Uh, you must wait one more week before you get to hear Dr. Gilcher speak. And so we look forward to that. And congratulations. That is that is a thrill. That is indeed a thrill. Well, uh, More than 20 years ago, I was living in Omaha, Nebraska, and I was a youth leader at our church. And there was a family there, and and they had uh, four daughters. They are all in the youth group. And the family used to like to invite me over uh, for different events and different things. And, and I really think it was, it was dad trying to get some guy time uh, with just the four daughters. He wanted some time to talk guy stuff. But uh, the daughters approached me and they said, hey, we want you to come and we want you to watch this movie with us. And I said, okay, and what's the movie? And they said, the movie is The Princess Bride. And being a guy, I thought... There's nothing in that title that sounds appealing to me. <laughs> nothing whatsoever. And yet, the one daughter, very wise, starts telling me what's in it. Uh, you know, she said, No, wait a second. They have sword fights and giants and torture and screeching eels. They have escapes and, and chases, all kinds of things. And I thought, Really? And it's called the Princess Bride. <laughs> Nonetheless, I went. But today when I stand here and I say, okay, if I were to ask you today to sit back and listen to something that was written 2,700 years ago to a small nation on the other side of the earth whose culture was so different than ours, whose, whose language isn't even spoken today, there might be a few, that odd few in the crowd would say, yeah, that sounds interesting to me. But for the most part, people are going to say, no, um, I I think that uh, I don't want to stay for the next two and a half hours and hear you talk about that. (laughs) Right? There are at least some people still listening. That's good. Uh, Just (laughs) testing you. That's great. But this is is not just about a a little country, but we have these same exciting things. In this, we have a love song that starts it off. We're going to have betrayal. We're going to have greed and corruption. It's all in here today, and we're going to cover that, but this is more than just a retelling of the past. You see, we are provided with a bird's-eye view of this nation of Israel. See, that's the fun part about the prophets. When we read certain books of the Old Testament, the histories, we read about what happened, and it's great, and we can see this happened and that happened and, and, and so on, but when we get to the prophets, we actually get insight now into the hearts of the people, and more importantly, into the heart of God. And we actually start to understand why things happened. And we get to see that from a viewpoint that even the Israelites at the time did not see. They did not have that advantage. So here we are, we're sitting back, and we're looking at this, trying to understand uh, the heart of God and the heart of the people. And this passage is very, uh, it's incredible. Uh, and in fact, so much so that if I were to take portions of this passage and I would just change the words a little bit so maybe it didn't sound so poetic and maybe spoke it to you as a narrative, but I didn't tell you it was coming from Scripture and I didn't tell you that it was written by the prophet Isaiah, some of you might think I'm talking about today and America and our society and the things that are going on. That's how relevant this is. By the the way, the word of God is relevant. It's not my job to stand up here and make the word of God relevant to you. The word of God is relevant. All I can do is mess it up. All I can do is somehow convince you the other way. But the word of God is relevant. And if I were to read this apart from some of these things, you might not even realize right away. But that's not a surprise. The preacher in Ecclesiastes said that there's... There's nothing new under the sun. You see, history is just a cycle of repetition. This was 2,700 years ago. And we're seeing it again. And we're seeing it still. It's very, very relevant to what we're doing. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he said that what was written in the Old Testament was written as examples for us so we can learn profound lessons from history. He was specifically referring in that instance to the exodus and the wanderings in the wilderness when he said, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And the book of Isaiah was written for us as an example so that we might not desire evil as they did. And we're going to go through the entire chapter 5 this morning of Isaiah. And it can be divided this way. The first seven verses are a parable. And it's going to be a lot of fun. As I was talking to Tommy before the service and we talked about this is beautiful. And and I wish I would have paid more attention in Hebrew. Because this is beautiful Hebrew poetry. Even the sounds of the consonants are used to evoke emotion from you. They they rhyme words, and they use that to to paint a picture that's not even spelled out in the words. This is an incredible part of poetry and and this parable that we see. But then beginning in verse 8, oh, it turns dark. The mood changes. And we see God declaring woes upon the people. And a woe is never good. And there are going to be six woes. There are going to be six things that he points out. And I was trying to figure out, what do I call these six things? I almost want to call them, you know, six deadly sins. But that kind of evokes back to the seven deadly sins that, that monks years ago tried to help people understand Scripture. But I think I'm calling them this, These are six different poisons that are out there in the world. These are poisons in the world that it's holding out to us. And if, and if you take this poison... You know, as believers, it won't kill us, but it'll hurt you. And it'll certainly do damage to your ministry and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there are four times that God will say, and by the way, here are now the consequences of that. So he spells out, if if, if you do these things, here are the consequences of those sins, those deadly sins, those poisons that are out there. And it's not just a declaration of you're in trouble now. When God declares a woe, he states the offense and then he argues the case against you with evidence. In other words, you're not going to be able to get out of it. You're guilty and he's going to show you that you're guilty. So let's look at the first two verses. And he begins, let me sing for my beloved. So this starts as a as a love song, and and some people think, well, maybe this was actually a a known tune of the time. This was a a melody they were familiar with, and when they heard him saying this, he could have potentially even been singing this, and Isaiah was singing this to the people, and they would have heard it, and he was making up new lyrics for it, and he's telling the story of a vineyard, but notice how he starts. He says, I will sing for my beloved. Now, we don't know who the beloved is. Right now, we don't know. We're not sure who that is, it could be a romantic thing. We just know Isaiah is getting up there, saying, "I'm singing to my beloved." We're going to find out later who that is. But then he describes a vineyard. Now, I don't come from an agricultural background. You know, my my hometown did, did coal mining. That was a, that was the thing there. But this vineyard that, that is exquisite. And so we're gonna we're gonna look at this. He says, number one, he said. Uh, He chose a great location on a hill. And by doing that, the the vineyard would receive sunshine. So it's going to get plenty of sunlight on this, and it's built on a, and it's hewn into a, or hewn, dug into a fertile hill. So it's fertile soil in a great location, a lot of sunshine. So the owner of the vineyard is taking great care to construct the best vineyard that he can do. It says he dug it and cleared it of stones. So what's he doing? He's going through and he's preparing the soil. If there's any hard soil, he's loosening it up. He's harrowing the soil. He's making it ready to grow. And then stones. And Israel is loaded with stones. In fact, there's an Arab proverb to the effect that says that when God was creating the whole world, there was an angel flying about that had all of the stones for the entire world. One bag under each wing. And as they were flying over Palestine, one bag broke. And so half of all the world's stones are in Palestine or in Israel. So when it says here that he had to go clear stones, this was no small task. This was no Uh, going to some great land and you got a few rocks you got to point out. No, this is loaded with stones. This is laborious work. This is hard work. This takes time. So he's going there and he's removing the stones from the vineyard. Now the stones would then be used to build a wall. You want to protect that vineyard. So he'd build a wall around the vineyard and he would even build a hedge. And normally it would be like a, a prickly pear or some sort of thorny bush. What you want to do is you want to keep critters from getting in there. Sometimes even two-legged critters. You don't want them to get into your vineyard. So you build a wall about it. You protect it even with a hedge. So it's thorny and painful and you protect your vineyard. And then you take some of the stones and you build a watchtower in the middle of it. Why? You want to give your workers the best view of the vineyard. You want to give them the best opportunity to care for that vineyard. So that's what they do. So he did this, and he planted it with the choicest vines. The best grapes were used, or the best vines to to produce the best grapes. So best location, fertile soil. He prepares it. He digs it up. He protects it. He removes all the stones. He loosens the soil. And now he takes the choicest vines, and he puts it in, and he plants it. He's so confident of his work that he hews out a wine vat from stone. He was so confident that what he had done would produce some great grapes and a great harvest that he already began building the wine press and the wine vat so he could be rewarded. The hard work being done, he now waited. And he would have to wait about two years for those vines to mature and be able to produce the grapes that he would want. So he had prepared everything, and now he's waiting. And what happens? Here comes the twist to the story. He got wild grapes. Wild isn't necessarily the best description we might think of. He got rotten grapes. He got Foul-smelling, foul-tasting grapes. These were disgusting, spit-them-out-of-your-mouth grapes. This is something you're not going to do anything with these grapes, grapes. He had done all the work, and now he ends up with something that's useless, and more than useless. It's disgusting. And so... He comes to verse 3 and he asks the question, and he's addressing the people. So he's just told them this parable. He just told them this story, what had happened. He says, And now, all right? I'm looking to you. And you just heard the story. And now. He changes his tone, but he asks some questions Whose fault is it? Is it my fault? Did I not prepare this vineyard properly? Or is the vine bad? Is there anything else I could have done? Could I have done something else to make these things produce good grapes? And he asked that of the people. And apparently there was a silence. There's no response. But he's he's making his case. I've done everything that I could do to, 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 to produce good grapes. And I got sour, rotten, terrible grapes. And the people don't answer. So in verse 5, he's going to say, well, now I'll tell you. And so, and now, I will tell you. And this is more than just, oh, let me inform you on this. He's saying, no, I'm going to uh, make you understand here. So he says, I want you to understand this. He says, now this is what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove the protection from it. Once you remove the protection, now the wild animals can get in. They can come in and they can eat from the, from the vines. They can do whatever they want and destroy them. But more so, he says, I'm going to break down its wall so that it gets trampled down. So now large animals can come in and trample down the vineyard and destroy it. So he's not just going to say, I'm abandoning it, I'm leaving it. He said, no, no. I'm taking away my protection from it. I'm removing the hedges. I'm removing the wall. And now it will be trampled down. It said, I'll make it a waste. I'm not going to prune it. not going to hoe it. We're not going to tend it. We're not going to care for it. And what will happen? Briars and thorns shall grow up. And that is kind of a, a little clue it's a reminder of God's judgment to Adam in the Garden of Eden when God said, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. This was a curse. This was a judgment on the land because of sin. And he said, then I will also command the clouds that, that they rain upon it no more. So wait a second. Who has the ability to command the clouds? We're getting an idea of who's speaking here. The vineyard owner is none other than God himself. And he's going to command the clouds that there's no rain that will come. Now comes the big reveal in verse 7. And God says, yeah, he is the owner. And the vineyard represents Israel and Judah. Right? In other words, this is you. As Isaiah standing up there speaking to the people they heard this wonderful song, and, and it was melodious. This was something nice they liked. It was pleasant to the ears. And then all of a sudden, he comes in and he hits them. Oh, by the way, that vineyard that we all condemned, that was you. You were the ones. And he said, and he gives him the reasons, and he said, we look for justice, but instead bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And in the Hebrew, these two words are going to kind of rhyme and sound like one another as they read them. So justice and bloodshed will sound familiar. Righteousness and outcry. In other words, the, the poor, the oppressed who are being taken advantage of are crying out. And those words sound similar. And you see there's meaning in that. They had the outward appearance that they were righteous. They had the outward appearance that they were just. but on the inside, they were rotten. On the inside, they were sour. On the inside, they were foul. And so God reveals to them, "This is you, Israel. Yeah, you look like grapes. You don't taste like grapes. You're not what I planted. They were a living hypocrisy. God, through Isaiah, he described the grace that he had poured out upon Israel. He had done everything for them, everything they needed. They were at the perfect crossroads of humanity where Europe, Asia, and Africa meet so that they could declare God's majesty to the world. They were in the right place. God had put them there. God protected them. And what did they do? They didn't just resist his grace. They despised it. They rejected his grace. They were going to do things their way. They had spiritual privilege and spiritual opportunity. And they turned it down. And now they would face judgment. And a curse has been pronounced upon them. Very soon after this, the northern kingdom of Israel would be conquered by the nation of Assyria in 722 BC. About 120 years later, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar would conquer Judah and Jerusalem. Judgment was coming. This was going to happen. When God returned them to their land, you would think that they would have learned their lesson. They were even anticipating the coming of the Messiah, and yet still, when the Messiah came, as the Apostle John says, he came to his own people, and his own people received him not they would continue to reject God and reject his grace and reject his Messiah. So now we get to verse 8 and the beginning of the woes. This parable reminds me of Nathan the prophet during the time of King David. When King David had committed adultery and then murder, he was living as if nothing had happened and Nathan confronted him Knowing that he was a shepherd boy, Nathan told him a story, told him a parable. And in this story, there was a rich man and a poor man. rich man had lots of flocks and lots of herds. The poor man had one little ewe lamb that they had bought really young, cared for it like a child of his own. Scripture says treated it like it was his own daughter. And then one day a traveler came to the rich man. And the rich man knew that with hospitality, you must take care of this traveler, you must feed him. But he did not want to take anything from his own large flocks. So instead he went to the poor man and he took that little ewe lamb, he killed it and he cooked it and he fed that. And King David, it says that his anger was, was kindled. Very great. King David is, is, oh, he's about to burst. And so David declares his judgment that man shall surely die and will repay four times what he had stolen. And Nathan had him on the hook like he was fishing. He had him biting. He said, to him, David, that was you. You were the one who had done that. You were the one who was guilty. And then God pronounced his judgment against King David. Now, after the same thing for the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, God is going to pronounce their guilt and their punishment. The first thing is greed and materialism. Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field. These are the people who were wealthy. They were just going and buying up land and buying up homes, buying up as much as they could. And they were just accumulating stuff and accumulating things. And and it was wrong. Not that they were doing necessarily anything illegal, But you see, God, that wasn't his plan. His plan was that that land would stay in families. And if you had to sell it, he provided for that. And every 50th year would be the year of Jubilee and you return it to the families so that you wouldn't have this great dichotomy, these rich folks who could take advantage of the poor. That wasn't God's plan. And yet that's what was happening. And so God says, here's what's going to happen then. These houses that you have, that you bought, well, they're going to end up being empty. And these fields, yeah, 10 acres of a vineyard will only produce about eight gallons of juice. That's not a lot. And when you plant 48 gallons of seed, you're only going to get five less than five gallons in return for what you've planted. This is famine and this is judgment that is coming down on them. They were greedy, they were materialistic, but they're not done. They were also very self-indulgent. In verse 11, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. And they tarry late in the evening. Then they also have lyre and harp and tamarine and flute and wine at their feasts, and they do not regard the works of the Lord. You see, they were going about gorging themselves with feasts and drinking, but not taking into account The deeds of the Lord. What are the deeds of the Lord? His redemption, his plan of redemption for humanity. Oh, Israel, you were my chosen. I put you here so that you could tell humanity about me that they might get saved. That's what I did for you. And yet you give no heed to that. You give no heed to the works of my hands. Look up. As the psalmist would say, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies the work of his hands. Yet they didn't gave that no account. They didn't care. So what are the consequences for that? Verse 13, therefore, because of that, because of your greed and materialism and because of your self-indulgence, therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. So remember, you bought up all that land, you bought all those houses, guess what? They're gone and you're gone. You're going in exile. You see how the the punishment fits the crime? You accumulated land and things that you weren't supposed to do, and so God is taking it all away from you and taking you to another land. For lack of knowledge, and they didn't even know why it was happening. They couldn't figure that out. Why is God doing this? Why? Why? And they never did any self-examination. They never looked at their own lives. And then verse 14 says... uh, Oh, I'm sorry, still verse 13. The honored men go hungry and the multitude is parched with thirst. So remember, they were feasting and they were drinking. Well, now they're going to go hungry and thirsty. They had been sitting at home. They had been reclining on their couches, leaning back, opening their mouths wide and, and partaking of all the food at the feasts and the drink. And God says, oh, no, no, not now. Now, Sheol, the place of death, is the one who's going to lean back and open its mouth and open it wide. And you are all are going to death. You're going down. Then in verse 15, we get a little bit of a scorecard. Verse 15, man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But God is exalted. He's showing himself holy in righteousness And that means that his judgments are righteous. He has righteous judgments in this. And then animals and nomads now pick through the ruins that you once had. That's the scorecard. That's where we're at. But we are not done. Round two of the woes and the consequences for that. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Here's what that means. He's painting a picture that these people were so irreverent uh, irreverent towards God, they didn't care about their sin at all. It's like they had their sin in a cart and they just pulled it along with them as they went along. They were not ashamed of their sin. They they, they carried it with them. They showed it off. They let the world see. There There was nothing that disturbed them about that. This is how they were living with their sin. And they're not done yet. Because what are they going to do next? They decide to mock God. Verse 19. They say this. They say, let him be quick. They're talking about God. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. They're mocking God. Here they have their sin that they are displaying for everybody to see. And they're saying, and God's not doing anything. I am sinning and I am getting away with it. And that's their attitude. But we're better today, aren't we? We're going to have secret sins. We're not going to carry it along in a cart because we want to look respectable. We want to be good-looking grapes. But we carry along secret sins. Folks, there's no such thing as a secret sin. God sees it all. There's no such thing as a victimless sin. If I'm by myself in my car and I get upset with another driver and I curse them out in the privacy of my own car with just me, it's not victimless. If you sit at home in front of a computer with images you should not be viewing, it's not victimless. You see, it's sin not because of what I'm doing. It's sin because of the, the majesty of the lawmaker. It's God who made the rules. And when I sin, I sin against God. That's why King David, after he was confronted by Nathan in Psalm 51, we can read it. And he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I don't know. He, he, he killed a man. That, that seems pretty good. But, but he violated the lawgiver. There's no such thing as secret sins or or victimless sins or hidden sins. And these people, though, weren't even caring about that. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. This is in Galatians. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You know, we, we look at sin today and we think, oh, nothing bad has happened. So I must be okay. A friend of mine, when I was in the military, he was married and he had a daughter and a son and he said, boy, they're different. He said, when, when my daughter breaks a rule, you know, we have the rule and she knows she broke it and she gets reprimanded for it, but we decide not to punish her for it. She feels a little bit relieved and she gets back in line and so on. He said, my son's different. If my son breaks the rule and we reprimand them, but don't punish him. in his eyes, that line is gone. That rule is gone. And he didn't have to follow anything anymore because he didn't receive the punishment for it. And that's the attitude people have. I'm not being punished for it, so it must not be bad. But that's not how it works. The next woe is perversion. Oh, this gets bad. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. They call light darkness and darkness they call light. They call what is bitter sweet and what is sweet bitter. This is outright perversion. They're taking what God has declared and they're saying the opposite. There are kind of two reasons for this. One is when we start to compromise our doctrine, we can get to perversion. If you compromise, if we deny the doctrine, for example, of judgment, the need for moral distinctions are unnecessary, so I don't have to follow rules. If I deny the doctrine of total depravity, then we can buy into the idea that Jesus came not to die for our sins, but to give me a good example for me to live by, but I still get to make choices. I still get to decide if we deny the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, then we say we don't have to follow the rules. We must have good doctrine if you want to stay in line with Scripture. And second, it's judgment that God pours out. Romans chapter 1 makes it clear that often the sin that we experience is judgment because of our sin. The next one is conceit, third woe, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. It doesn't surprise us that this follows what we just read. Of course they're going to do what they think is right in their own eyes. It's probably done in the name of practicality. Remember some of the kings in the Old Testament? They were waiting for the prophet to come and offer the sacrifice so they could go into battle, but the prophet was delayed. So what did they decide to do? I will take on the role of the priest. I will offer the sacrifices. I will do what's practical to do. And they sinned against God. King Saul would have his kingdom ripped away from him for that. And this is also played out in church history. That the formation of the church with Christ and the apostles, if you wanted to understand what was true, you had certain filters, certain hierarchy of truths and scripture was always at the top. And after that, you had the teachings of the church leaders underneath that. Underneath that, you had reason and rationality. What makes sense? And At the very bottom, you would put personal experience and community. But about a thousand years after the formation of the church, the Catholic Church, the Pope in particular, came along and said, no, my authority is greater than that of scripture." and they removed scripture from being an authority and they would use the teaching of the church leaders as their authority for determining truth. It was only 600 years later they would say, you know what? When Descartes sat in the oven trying to solve a math problem and he walks out and says, I think, therefore I am, he declared that anything in the past is is worthless. Only the present Matters now, and only reason and only the mind matters. So he he took away the teachings of the church leaders and the church fathers. They're gone now, the creeds and such. So now all decisions are made by reason and rationality. Until we get to the 1950s, we had just experienced two world wars, 300 years of reason, and we see more death and destruction on a scale unprecedented. And people said, you know what? Reason and rationality don't make sense either. Get rid of it. And all we're left with is personal experience and community. And we see that playing out. We see that playing out and where people can say in, with some somewhat sincerity that, well, Jesus may be God to you, but he's not God to me. And actually, if he's God, he's God. Whether I acknowledge him or you acknowledge him, it doesn't matter. If he's God, he's God. But they have... Have eliminated scripture, the teachings of the church leaders, and they've eliminated even reason and rationality, and they're simply left with their own experience to determine what's true. How do we fix it? First thing, put scripture back. Put scripture where it belongs, that that is absolute truth, and that is what we need to be about. Proverbs 3 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear God and depart from evil. And we finally get to the last one, corruption. Verse 23, uh, Well, verse 22 and 23. Uh, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of their right." What are they talking about here? They're talking about leaders. So these heroes and these valiant men are the leaders. And of course, then there're the judges, and they're supposed to be doing what is right. Instead, no, they would rather be heroes of drinking. They're, they're being drunk, they're not doing their jobs, they're not leading, they're not judging properly. And when the leadership falls, the people will follow. And so now, we get to God's judgment in this. He's about to pronounce judgment, because you have failed to judge yourselves and run your nation with justice and righteousness. So God is going to remove you as a nation. Verse 24, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down into the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. So why does he say, as the fire consumes the grass of the field? Because the grass can't escape the fire. When the fires come and the grass can't run, it's inevitable. So just as the grass can only sit there and be burned up, guess what? Your roots and your seed, our rottenness, are going to be destroyed. So he's saying this is going to be complete and utter devastation for you nations. You're going to be removed from the land. That's how bad this is. And why? And this is, this is chapter 5 right here in verse 24 at the end. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Why all of this? How did they get into so much trouble? How did we have those six poisons that just killed this nation? How do we have these deadly sins get in? It's because they have Rejected the law of the Lord and they have despised his word, and that is why. And so, God's going to explain how he's going to do all of this, and he says he will raise a signal for the nations far away, verse 26, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. Then he describes how they're going to come, they won't be tired, they won't stumble, they won't even sleep. Their waistband, their sandals, what means their equipment is in great order. Their arrows are sharp. Their bows are bent. Their horses and chariots are coming as one. It's terrifying, and you can't prepare for it. Isn't it interesting? The chosen ones, the nation of Israel, who God chose, disobeys God over and over and over again. He gives them his word. He gives them the prophets and they disobey him over and over and over again. And yet when the Lord God snaps his finger and whistles for the nations to come and judge, they come speedily. So now we have the ones who are supposed to be the heathens, the ones who hate God are actually responding to God and doing his will for him. While the nation, the chosen one, is not doing his will. Verses 29 and 30 basically show us the aftermath of the battle, like lions carrying their prey away. And if you look on the land, behold darkness and distress. So what do we, what do we learn from this? What do we observe? Number one, we have received grace. Notice in the vineyard, God does all the work. He's the one that clears the stones. He's the one that, that builds the wall. He's the one that does all of that. And likewise, we have received grace as Christians. But that means we also don't get to make the rules about what it means to be a Christian or how we should live. We must follow the Lord God on that and his word. We can't say, well, since I had a little bit of part in this. No, we didn't. This is grace received. We simply respond in obedience. We also have some terrifying examples what it looks like the poison in the world, and how it overtakes you. And you see, there's there's never such thing as a little bit of greed that is good. We can't tolerate just a little bit of corruption or mockery or perversion or conceit or self-indulgence. No. God disciplines grace-resistant people. In other words, when we live differently than the giver of the grace we have received says we should live, we should expect to be disciplined. And the root of all of this, the core, when we have to whittle it all down and say, why did this happen? They rejected God's word. That's why it happened. And this is why we're so adamant here about teaching scripture, whether it's in Sunday school or whether it's in home group, in the the children's ministry, applications. Number one, we need to do a heart check. We need to to be sincere when we look at ourselves. Are we harboring any of these poisons in our lives? Even a little bit that we need to get rid of, we need to eliminate. Is there anything in our lives that we need to clean out? Don't allow sin even a little foothold in your life. Number two, scripture, scripture, scripture. I know that you hear this week after week. We talk about the importance of Scripture. We talk about the importance of, of being in the Word and, and studying it. And we do that for a reason. This is what can change lives the Word of God. And by the way, there are people out there who are going to struggle with it. Hey, I struggle with studying the Bible or reading it. Come talk to us. We struggle too. That's okay. We talk about redemptive relationships. We talk about, hey, your holiness is my top priority. My holiness is your top priority. If you struggle, don't struggle alone. Let's struggle together. Let us help one another. God has equipped people in this church to be teachers. Take advantage of that. That's what God did. That wasn't anyone's doing. Take advantage of this body of believers. Don't sit there and struggle alone. And then finally we can know we have the true vine. The true vine, Jesus Christ, who did what Israel, that vineyard, could not do. They could not live up to God's law. They could not live perfectly. But there was one who came, the promised one, called the servant in this book, in this Isaiah, who did come and live the perfect life. And because of him, we can have eternal life. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word and the marvelous truths in it. We confess passages like this can be difficult for us because it far too often looks like us. We prize possessions and we love making the rules. Teach us to trust in your promises. Let us love you and your word and make us an obedient people who bring glory to you. Amen.